Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. When Darwin said fittest, he didn't necessarily mean the strongest or the most intelligent or any one trait. He merely meant those organisms most well suited to their environments. Now we humans, we think we're more fit, more evolved because we're smarter, but we're neophytes. We've only been on this earth 2 million years, give or take. The cockroach, that fellow's been around 350 million years. So based on that, which of us is the more successful species? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 117, Slither. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge welcome back to all of you wonderful, amazing returning listeners and welcome to all the brand new listeners who are listening to this podcast for the first time. Thank you so much for being here. You are all wonderful and amazing people for listening, choosing to listen to this podcast and basically no matter how you got here... I am so grateful that you are here, especially for this episode. And I know I say that every week, but I feel like this is a particular movie that really, really does deserve more of your love. So if you are here for Slither, I am so grateful that you're here for Slither because this is a super fun movie and it really, really does deserve your ears for this particular episode. But before we start on Slither, a huge thank you to everyone who's listen to the previous episodes of this podcast. There were quite a few episodes that have been released recently. There was an episode on Aliens. There was a new NaNoWriMo episode on Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. And NaNoWriMo's are slightly smaller episodes that kind of focus on tidbits of information rather than the whole shebang, basically. And that's kind of a new thing that I want to do every month, if I can. And also an episode on Gremlins 2, the new batch, which... It's fascinating because the episode on Aliens was officially the most downloaded episode on launch day ever of this whole podcast. And then a week later, Gremlins 2 The New Batch came out and surpassed it by about three or four downloads. So not not by a lot, 
But incredibly, Gremlins 2 The New Batch is the most popular launch episode of Verbal Diorama ever. You would not think that Gremlins 2 The New Batch could do that, but it did. And, you know, never underestimate the power of Gremlins. And this episode's Slither should really have come after the Alien movies, because if you think about it, there's a few links. There's creatures that go for your face and in your mouth, becoming a host body for an alien organism. And the fact that basically if you do become a zombie for this creature, you're going to die at the end. And this movie has a huge death toll. Let's just say that up front. Not as big as Guardians of the Galaxy's death toll, which is in its thousands and thousands, but a whole town basically dies in this movie. So it's big enough. But enough about death. Let's go into the trailer for Slither. This is James Gunn's directorial debut. And it's a movie that really struggled to find an audience back in 2006. Throughout the years, these classic horror films had one thing in common. <laughs> From Universal Pictures <laughs> comes a film so shocking. Uh, we've got a real problem here. So disgusting. Don't let him in your mouth! It will change the face. <laughs> They're doing things to people, turning them into some kind of monsters. How's everybody's evening? Good? Good. season in the small town of Wheelsey, a meteor falls in the woods containing an alien worm. That night, Starla Grant refuses to have sex with her husband Grant, and the upset man goes to a bar to have some drinks and meets another woman. While falling around in the woods, Grant sees the meteorite on the ground, and the slug-like creature from it shoots an alien parasite into his chest. He suddenly has a voracious appetite for raw meat, as well as impregnating as many human hosts as possible with thousands of slugs. As soon as a slug takes over a human host, they become a zombie for the mutating Grant, and only Starla, the local police chief, and a teenage girl can save Wheelsy. We'll quickly run through the cast. We have Elizabeth Banks as Starla Grant, Nathan Fillion as Bill Pardy, Michael Rooker as Grant Grant. Great name, by the way. I'm a huge fan of same name, first name, last name. Similarly with Super Mario Brothers, where the lead character is called Mario Mario. Tanya Solnier as Kylie Strutmeyer. Greg Henry as Jack McCready. Don Thompson as Wally. Brenda James as Brenda Gutierrez. Jennifer Copping as Margaret. Jenna Fisher as Shelby Cunningham. And Haig Sutherland as Trevor. And Slither was written and directed by James Gunn. 
nowadays, I'm pretty certain James Gunn is a name that everyone knows. He's the only director to have worked at both Marvel and DC. And famously, DC stole him after Disney fired him for some pretty controversial tweets from 10 plus years ago. But before James Gunn worked for DC or Marvel, before he was a screenwriter who wrote both Scooby-Doo movies the first of which is episode 62 of this podcast. And before he wrote the Zack Snyder-directed remake of Dawn of the Dead, Gunn started his career at Troma Entertainment. Troma, founded in 1974 by Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz, first started producing, directing and distributing raunchy sex comedies in the mid-70s and progressed to low-budget campy B-movies with plenty of gore and violence. In 1985, they had their first hit with The Toxic Avenger, a superhero black comedy splatter film directed by Michael Hertz and Lloyd Kaufman, credited as Samuel Wheel. The Toxic Avenger was so successful, it generated a media franchise, including three sequels, a stage musical, a video game and a children's cartoon series called Toxic Crusaders. The Toxic Avenger was the film that built Troma and was the first horror film from the company. After this success, Troma focused solely on horror. The Toxic Avenger was followed by Class of Newcomb High, at one point the highest selling VHS release for the company, and like The Toxic Avenger and most films made by Troma, is set in the fictional New Jersey city of Tromaville, known as the toxic chemical capital of the world. In 1995, James Gunn started working at Troma, considering Lloyd Kaufman his mentor, Gunn rewrote an original script called Tromeo and Juliet, written by Kaufman, Andy Deemer and Phil Revo, taking the original script's Shakespearean verse and making it darker and more comical. Under the tutelage of Kaufman, Gunn learned the movie production ropes. After the release of Tromeo and Juliet, Gunn wrote The Specials, a superhero comedy film, lots of superhero comedy films in this guy's filmmaking history, that unlike all of the superhero films, was about the heroes living their average day-to-day -day lives. And then in 2002 came Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, which is super fun, by the way, is often misattributed to James Gunn as his movie. Many think that he directed it. The director is actually Raja Gosnell. But the two Scooby-Doo movies are so associated with James Gunn that a lot of people think he started directing earlier than he actually did. But after Scooby-Doo in 2002 and Scooby-Doo Monsters Unleashed in 2004, as well as the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake... And those latter movies meant that The Gun was the first screenwriter to have two films top the box office in consecutive weeks. James Gunn's actual directorial debut would be Slither and it would be a dinner with his brother Brian that would plant an image into his head. His brother asked him what's the scariest thing he could think of was and Gunn replied, a woman on her knees going into convulsions with her eyes rolling into the back of her head as a foot-long red parasite burrowed through her mouth and into the back of her throat, flapping its tail like a docked trout. That's a direct quote. Gunn had always wanted to write and direct a horror movie and this initial image would form the basis for Slither, an homage to 80s horror movies, body horror, creature features and extraterrestrial terror. And Gunn wanted to pay tribute to the classic, gory, funny horror movies that he had grown up with. Movies like Shivers, It Came From Within, Reanimator, The Thing, The Fly, The Blob, Evil Dead 2 and Invasion of the Body Snatchers all offer inspiration for Slither. One thing the movie is not inspired by is Night of the Creeps, Fred Decker's directorial debut. Fred Decker also did The Monster Squad. Many people believe it is due to the similarities between both plots. However, James Gunn has stated that he didn't see Night of the Creeps until after Slither's release 
and that chances are Decker was influenced and inspired by all the same horror movies that James Gunn was. Slither also has Lovecraftian roots, and the concept of a meteorite crashing into a fictional rural town was the plot of H.P. Lovecraft's The Colour Out of Space, which was first published in 1927 and most recently adapted into a 2019 Nicolas Cage movie, which is unsurprisingly called Colour Out of Space. So James Gunn had this idea, and despite interest from other studios, Gold Circle wanted to put the movie into production straight away, as well as give James Gunn complete creative freedom. He started writing the screenplay, and at this point he wasn't attached to direct. He was purely writing it for the money to do his own independent film, but as he continued to write it, he started to fall in love with it, and offered to direct it. As he was writing it, he envisaged Michael Rooker, who he'd seen in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, as the only contender for the role of Grant Grant, and he knew he wanted a Hitchcock blonde for the role of Grant's much younger wife, Starla, and Elizabeth Banks fit the bill. And honestly, I often forget that Elizabeth Banks' career goes way back, but it genuinely does. Although set in Wheelsey, a fictional small town in South Carolina, USA, the film was shot in Canada and under Canadian law, movies shot in Canada must contain Canadian actors. Part Canadian Nathan Fillion jokes on the DVD that his Canadian citizenship is the one reason he got the part of police chief Bill Pardy. However, at this time, he was fresh off his starring role in Joss Whedon's Firefly and its movie sequel Serenity, which I covered on this podcast, episode 53. And so Fillion has, and still has to an extent, certain credentials among the geek and sci-fi community for just being completely awesome. And just on a side note about Nathan Fillion, how he never became a huge Hollywood star is honestly beyond me because he has the looks, the ability, the charisma. And I know he had a leading role in the series Castle for seven years, but for his part, Fillion has partnered with James Gunn for a few things, as well as with Joss Whedon, who himself dabbled in comedy horror for 2011's Cabin in the Woods. That's episode seven of this podcast. James Gunn does have a tendency to hire the same actors. Obviously, Michael Rooker has appeared in all of his movies. Gunn's brother Sean Gunn also appears in a cameo in this movie and Greg Henry's character Mayor Jack McCready was named after Kurt Russell's characters in Big Trouble in Little China and The Thing respectively, both previous episodes of this podcast. There's a lot of other episode references in this particular episode, I warn you now. Shooting in Vancouver primarily at night and primarily outside for two months was not the most perfect environment for filming a horror movie. It was cold, it was wet... And whilst the shoot was fun in the sense that everyone enjoyed each other's company and became close, even James Gunn himself ended up collapsing due to the cold. Even more impressive was that they were shooting a scene on the balcony between Bill and Starla and Elizabeth Banks was only wearing a thin dress and a shawl at the time and how she managed to cope with that and other people didn't. I mean, that just proves how cool Elizabeth Banks is, I guess. There are a few visible homages to other horror movies, namely Earl Bassett High School and not to Earl Bassett in Tremors. Covered that on the podcast too. There's also Hennelotta Saddle Lodge, named after cult horror writer and director Frank Hennenlotta. A store named Max Wren, after the character in David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Meg Penny's Diner, named after the character in The Blob. The Castavet's Farm, where the group finds mutilated dogs is named after the neighbours in Rosemary's Baby. And the scene with Kylie in the bathtub is a direct reference to both David Cronenberg's Shivers as well as A Nightmare on Elm Street. There are also cameos in this movie from director Rob Zombie as Dr. Carl, who Starla speaks to on the phone about Grant's condition, and Gunn's trauma mentor Lloyd Kaufman cameos as Sad Drunk in the police station. Slither has a mix of practical and CG effects, and arguably the practical effects have held up very well 
CG, kind of mostly not, but some slug and tentacle effects are still really, really creepy. The prosthetic practical effects were crafted by Todd Masters and the digital effects under the supervision of production visual effects supervisor John Gajdecki. Eagle-eared listeners will recognise Todd Masters' name from his work on the excellent Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, another episode of this podcast, the practical effects of which I adore. Slither has 261 CG visual effects shots, including CG tentacles and other appendages. CG slugs, wire removals, a flashback on an alien world, stunt enhancements, map paintings, and even an asteroid colliding with the Earth. These were mostly handled by an in-house unit, but nine vendors also contributed to CG shots, including Meteor Studios, Image Engine, Digital Dimension, Technical Creative Services, Rocket Science, Invisible Pictures, and Switch Studios. Kleiser Walzak also offered last-minute help on the scene where tentacles envelop a deer. One of the most complicated shots in the movie is where poor Brenda, full of parasitic slugs, explodes into thousands of them. It's pretty gross. Practical effects were used for actor Brenda James to crawl into a 12-foot diameter ball of silicon fat for her character's bloated body. Meteor Studios then created a CG Brenda that literally tore apart in Maya with soft body simulation and used real flow to literally fill it with liquid. They tweaked parameters like viscosity, gravity, etc. They generated a liquid mesh filled with parasites and a particle system and exported this back into Maya and used a particle instancer to cycle the swimming parasites. They then rendered the mesh with Renderman using a custom goo shader. Custom goo. Lovely. And after Brenda explodes, a wave of 25,000 slug parasites overcome the group of humans. For shots featuring... The 25,000 Parasites, Meteor used Houdini's crowd simulation engine, which allowed them to generate all the layers without adding any interpenetration. The shot where the slugs crawl over Nathan Fillion and Elizabeth Banks is actually one of James Gunn's least favourite shots in the movie. He felt it was rushed and didn't look great in the finished product. Michael Rooker's gradual transformation into the beast he would become would take at the least three hours and at the most seven and a half hours in makeup and prosthetics, the makeup process was painful and Rooker channeled that pain into the character of Alien Grant because Grant as a character actually dies as soon as he's infected by the creature but the creature retains Grant's personality, characteristics as well as his love for Starla and his jealousy that the young beautiful Starla might be tempted away by someone similarly young and beautiful like, I don't know, Nathan Fillion. <laughs> I have a huge crush on Nathan Fillion, still do. The alien Grant puppet in the field was controlled by puppeteers who were digitally removed. The full-sized alien Grant also had both CG and practical effects. Tentacles uh, weighed about 80 pounds, most of which was balanced on Michael Rooker's head. The monster also absorbed other people into himself at the end, which also adds to his mass. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, this movie is pretty gross, genuinely, but it fascinatingly gross. The practical slugs were actually made out of the same material used to make uh, <coughs> sex toys. There was even a shortage of petroleum-based sex toys during this time because of the war in Iraq. It was special effects expert Dan Rebert who used to work at a sex toy business that brought the knowledge of the material they were made out of. These toys, both male and female appendages, were cut up and melted down to be fashioned into practical slugs. 
Each slug was outfitted with a remote-controlled mechanism. The spine of the creature was actually a series of tiny rods, screws, bolts and electronics manipulated by a technician. This mechanism was then placed inside a mould into which the gel is then applied and poured. After having been given the time to settle around the mechanism, the slug is then painted and is ready to be filmed. Each remote control slug was controlled using hand movements and gestures to make it wriggle or move in any number of directions. Nearly 500 different prosthetic slugs were made for Slither, including three for the scene where it tries to enter Kylie's mouth, which will never, ever not be gross. But most of the slugs that you see on screen are computer generated just for the fact sheer numbers. And the fact that James Gunn actually wanted to make this movie a practical effects movie with CGI enhancements rather than the other way around adds to that feeling of kind of a bit of a blast from the past, a, a modern movie with traditional sensibilities. It's actually a great advertisement for when movies embrace puppetry, makeup, practical effects and buckets of blood and gore, as well as embracing the CG when it's appropriate to do so. And obviously not many horror movies are made in this fashion anymore. I mean, I do have a lot of questions. There are quite a lot of plot holes in this movie. For example, what happened to the meteorite slug creature? It didn't die. No one else found it, or did they? What happened to all of the other red slugs that didn't have a human host body? And most importantly, what happened to the cat at the end? That is the most important question. And clearly, it was setting itself up for a sequel. And unfortunately for us, that sequel never came and probably never will come now because James Gunn has obviously gone off to do much bigger and much better things. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves and you might think I would find this quite tough. This is a movie about aliens. I mean, I've struggled with Keanu and aliens before, haven't I? And this is a movie about tentacles and slugs and <laughs> and blood and guts and gore and all of those things. However, I found this remarkably easy because in my own private Idaho, Keanu's character Scott Favor says the line, when you wake up, wipe the slugs off your face, be ready for a new day. And this is literally a movie about slugs who go for your face. So, I mean, this is probably the only time I can use this particular reference anyway, but... How perfect is that obligatory Keanu reference? I think it's pretty perfect. So I've talked a little bit about Slither and about how Slither came together, about the filming of Slither, about the practical effects that I love in Slither. But there is a problem with Slither. And the problem with Slither is that Slither didn't do very well at the box office. Remarkably, I don't know why, but... so. Slither, like most horror movies, actually didn't come out at the traditional horror movie period. We would think that a traditional horror movie would come out at Halloween, so maybe October sort of time. So most horror movies actually don't come out during this period. Uh, a lot of horror movies actually come out, bizarrely, in March or June or July or something ridiculous like that. So on the 31st of March 2006... Slither was released in both the US and Canada. It was also released during a bit of a dry spell for specifically comedy horror. Because while we had Scary Movie in 2000, which was more of a parody than anything else, I've spoken about that. I actually spoke about that in the episode on Scream because Scary Movie is mostly a parody of Scream and I know what we did last summer and all of that. But the only movies comparable to Slither 
are probably Eight-Legged Freaks in 2002 and Shaun of the Dead in 2004. Now, Shaun of the Dead is a little bit of an anomaly because that was a huge hit, but it didn't really reinvigorate the comedy horror genre. When Slither came out in 2006, first of all, it differs greatly in its humour to Shaun of the Dead. And arguably, the movie that did start a comedy horror renaissance wasn't Shaun of the Dead, it was probably Zombieland in 2009 because it wasn't until Zombieland that comedy horror started to become quite popular again. That was followed by Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which I also love, by the way, that was in 2010. Cabin in the Woods in 2011, which as I said, I've covered on this podcast. Warm Bodies in 2013. And Slither with its homages to classic B-movie horror really just seems to have come out at the wrong time for audiences because it didn't do very well at the box office and audiences didn't really give it the chance it deserved. It was released the same day as Ice Age The Meltdown, which hit number one at the box office that week. Slither debuted at number eight. V for Vendetta, which is episode 67 of this podcast, had been out for two weeks at that point, and that was still at number four in the US box office. In its second week, Slither dropped to 13. And it's really unfortunate that Slither underperformed so badly at the box office because it definitely didn't deserve to flop. With a production budget of $15 million, not including marketing costs, of course, it would only end up making $12.9 million worldwide. So yeah, technically... This movie is seen as a flop. Gold Circle were crushingly disappointed by the lacklustre response to Slither. President Paul Brooks blamed the movie's split focus on its box office downfall, suggesting the fact that because it was a horror comedy rather than just a pure horror movie is where its problems lie. That fans either want horror or comedy, but not both. And I'd argue that the comedy is subtle enough in Slither to get away with not being marketed as such but it's no hardcore horror movie either. Simply put, this is an original, albeit based on existing ideas, movie, something people should want, especially in a cinematic climate full of sequel after sequel of horror franchises. And yet in 2006, not many people actually wanted to see this movie. Despite this, it was really well reviewed by critics. Slither currently sits at 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, with most critics enjoying the effective and affection-laden homages to low-budget B-movie horror films. And also Slither picked up the 2006 Fangoria Chainsaw Award for the highest body count, obviously, and garnered nominations in the categories of Relationship from Hell, Dude You Don't Want to Mess With, and Looks That Kill. As I said, this movie ends with a whole town dying. You do expect people to come back to life, and they don't. That's brave filmmaking to kill a whole town. At least they don't kill a baby because the tomatoes still need tenderising. So that's why the baby stayed alive. As I said, Slither was set up for a sequel in its final moments. No sequel for Slither. And that is really unfortunate because I think that a movie like this actually does deserve more appreciation. And that appreciation could come in the form of a sequel. Whether people would want that now with the reliance on superhero cinema that James Gunn himself has now gone into. I mean, it's not really a question that can be answered. It's more of a hypothetical question, really. But I really do feel like Slither deserves so much more love than anyone ever gave it. And that's why I really wanted to talk about it on Verbal Diorama. But you now know what I think about this movie. I think it's absolutely fantastic and brilliant and the 
effects are just superb. But what do other people think? So I like to find out, I like to ask on Patreon and also on social media. And we're going to start with the patron thoughts. And we're going to start with Dan, who says, The comparison to Night of the Creeps can't be understated. Although Slither is a worthy spiritual sequel, James Gunn masterfully infused the script with wit and a healthy dose of body horror and a solid cast bring Gunn's vision to life. And we also have a patron comment from Sam, who says, James Gunn knows how to do weird. Nathan Fillion is always great, but Elizabeth Banks is phenomenal in this. She's always been a character actress in a leading lady's body, and it was an absolute delight seeing her having so much fun with this role. Solid film. And Sam's podcast is the brilliant movie reviews in 20 Qs. They take a movie and they ask 20 questions about it, but not the sort of questions that your auntie would probably ask. Uh, information on that podcast is in the show notes. It is a must listen. So please go listen to Sam's podcast. We're going to move on to Twitter. Now, we've actually only got one comment on Twitter, um, <laughs> which, to be honest, I'm not all that surprised about because I think Slither is one of those movies that not many people have heard of. But if you have heard of it and you've seen it, then you like it. But the comment from Twitter is from Billy at We Watched a Thing. And he says, I was an early fan of Guns. And between this film and his screenplay for Dawn of the Dead, I think you can see where his strengths really lie. Strange yet believable characters in strange situations. The acting across the board is brilliant and it's fun, gory and smart. We are going to move over to Instagram. We've actually got more comments on Instagram than on Twitter, which never happens, I don't think, or hardly ever happens. And we're going to start with at the cinema guys, who says, One of James Gunn's best. This movie is just sheer fun to watch. And at Stunt Go Animation, who says, Gory, slimy, fun with an amazing cast. It's a film that more people need to see. Absolutely 100% agree with that. This is a movie that more people need to see. And unsurprisingly, no comments over on Facebook. But a huge thank you, as always, to those who took the time to leave a message for Slither. Slither really does feel like a love letter to 80s creature features and B-movie horror. And while it does utilise CG effects when it needs to, the fact it relies so heavily on practical creature effects makes it belie its 15 years. It's grotesque body horror of the highest order and the shades of the thing and the fly are obvious, but the effects themselves feel unique to this story and to this world. And sure, the story is hardly original, but the characters are enjoyable, the cast is strong. And to me, it's the effects that keep me coming back to this movie. It's nothing we've not seen before, but it's simultaneously nothing we've seen before. This is a movie that feels like it could only have come from the dark, twisted, trauma-infused mind of James Gunn. It's also the movie that would pave the way for what would come next for him, which was Super, a movie that I'll admit I think is the weakest of his movies. But Super put him on the map for future endeavours with Marvel and with DC and with Marvel again. At a tightly paced 95 minutes, this feels like accessible horror for anyone who wants to sample the genre but doesn't want to jump in at the deep end. It's certainly my level of acceptable horror. Does the CG age it? Yeah, ever so slightly. But most of the CG is actually decent, all the way down to the slime trails of the slugs. And honestly, I've never been keen on slugs, and this movie might be the reason why. I still hate slugs. Hate them. If I see a slug in the garden, I 
have to get rid of it. I don't know why I hate slugs so much, but clearly it's come from me watching this movie. And I'm delighted that James Gunn wasn't put off from the disappointing returns of this movie that he carried on. And also that he started with this because it feels unique despite its many horror homages. And plus there's a definite Slither vibe to the character Starro in The Suicide Squad. If you've seen The Suicide Squad, which came out this year, 2021, the character of Starro and what happens in Slither, it's very similar. It genuinely is very similar. And I just want to finish by quoting horror director Eli Roth. And he said, In 15 years, nobody is going to be watching Ice Age The Meltdown. Everybody is going to be watching DVDs of Slither. And with the 15th anniversary this year, I think now's the time to prove Eli Roth correct. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Slither. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help this podcast grow and be noticed by others. You can do tiny things for free that would really help me. You could tell your friends and family about this podcast. You could leave a, ideally five stars, rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And you can also retweet or like posts on social media because that always helps visibility. And you never know, someone you know might be introduced to this podcast because of you. It's happened actually recently. People who saw me on Twitter have now started listening and it's really lovely because then I get messages saying, oh, I found you on so-and-so. And that's really nice for me to feel like people are actually listening because independent podcasting is hard, guys. Often we feel like we're not even being listened to. So just a couple of moments of your time to do one of those things would just be so appreciated. And if you like this episode on Slither, you might also like one of the following previous episodes of Verbal Diorama. Episode 41, Tremors, a movie that also did poorly at the box office and found an audience on VHS. Episode 48, The Thing, a movie that also did poorly at the box office and found an audience on VHS. Episode 66, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, a movie that also did poorly at the box office and found an audience on VHS. And episode 96, The Monster Squad, a movie that also did poorly at the box office and found an audience on VHS. There's a definite link between all of those movies. I can't put my finger on what it might be. However, this movie is now seen as a cult classic, like all of those movies that I've just mentioned, for very good reason. It wasn't appreciated at the time. Now's the time, 15 years later, to appreciate this movie. So please go out, get a copy of Slither and watch it because you'll love it, I guarantee. As always, give me feedback on my recommendations. Do you think I got it right? I mean, I've, I've mentioned quite a lot of episodes, this particular episode, for good reason, because there's a lot of links between Slither and other stuff that I've featured. And that's another reason why I wanted to cover Slither. But let me know on social media what you think. The next episode of this podcast is an easy obligatory Keanu reference for me. Finally, and a movie a long time coming to this podcast because it has everything I love. Right, let's go down the list. Practical effects, yes. Keanu Reeves, yes. An Annie Lennox song in the credits, yes. And vampires, yes. Namely the most famous of all vampires. Yep, I'm going back to the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola directed Bram Stoker's Dracula. Are you excited about this? I'm excited about this. I love this movie 
completely. I've spoken about it on Movies After Work a long time ago, actually. I think it was like a year and a half or two years ago I spoke about Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I have been waiting for this October season to talk about Dracula on purpose and it is just one of the most beautiful films. Pretty much 99.9% completely practical effects as well and I will talk about that on that episode next week. I hope that you will come back and join me for Bram Stoker's Dracula and yes I am going to be talking about Keanu's role as Jonathan Harker uh, and what I think about Jonathan Harker. So yeah, please come back next week for that. If you want to follow me on social media, I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also contact me on email, verbaldiorama at gmail.com and at my website, verbaldiorama.com. If you want to support the show financially, you're under no obligation, of course, but if you would like to, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are, as always, Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan, Sam, and brand new patrons, Will and Jack. Both Will and Jack have joined as Johnny Utah patrons because all of my patron tiers are Keanu themed, obviously, and they both signed up the weekend just gone. It's one of those really weird things that sometimes you don't get any new patrons for ages, and then sometimes, like you wait for a bus, they then all come along at once. Huge thanks to Will and to Jack. Jack is also a podcaster. He's one of the hosts of Sequelizers. So expect some shout outs if you make any comments going forward, Jack. But a huge thank you as always to all of the patrons. verbaldiorama.com slash merch and I also do bits for film stories so you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk I write for the magazine I write online as well there's a new issue of the magazine that's just about to drop so please go and check that out and finally 
Surprised you're able to lift a mug you've been carrying that torch for so long. Bye. Movie tonight.